The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. Um, we have a great topic. We're going to talk about um, adolescents and how their brain develops and how we can help them uh, when it comes to high-risk behavior and how we can help parents with uh, different parenting skills. And our um, expert guest today is Dr. Crystal, I'm sorry, Crystal, Dr. Crystal Collier who is a Ph.D., and um, she has been working with adolescents and adults who experience mental illness, behavioral disorders, and substance abuse since 1991. She's a licensed uh, clinician by the state of Texas as a professional counselor since 1999. I don't know where I got 1991 from. Um, and a counselor supervisor since 2008. I'm just messing this right up for you, Crystal. Um, <laughs> Crystal has a master's degree in clinical psychology and a doctorate in counselor education. Her area of expertise includes adolescent brain development, prevention programming, independent living skills training, uh, parent coaching, and um, educating new clinicians. Crystal is currently the director of the Behavioral Health Institute and the Choices Prevention Program for the Council on Alcohol and Drugs in Houston. Her innovative comprehensive prevention program, Choices, recently was selected for the 2015 Prevention and Education Commendation from the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. And I had the um, honor of meeting Crystal in, I think it was January, right after Christmas, mm-hmm. I was able to go to the National, um, I'm sorry, to the Council on Alcohol and Drugs in Houston, and it's an amazing place, and you do wonderful work and very innovative uh, types of treatment and prevention. So welcome to One Hour at a Time, and thank you thank for you. joining us today. Wonderful. Thank you for asking. And I apologize for that messy intro. Um, obviously, my bifocals were not focused. But um, can can you begin by sharing with our audience a little bit about about the adolescent brain development? Just how the adolescent brain develops, and why why is it different from a, like a, a child's brain or an adult's brain? Sure, that's a great question. We, we get all the neurons that we're ever going to get by the time we're about six years old, about 200 billion neurons in our brain. One of the reasons why it's so easy to learn a new language when we're really young is because we have just a proliferation of all these fantastic neurons. And then our body goes through a moratorium in our brain for a little while, which means our brain growth starts to slow down while our body starts catching up. So we go through a really big physical growth spurt in between about age 7 and 11. 
And then by about age 11 for girls and 12 and a half for boys, hopefully we hit puberty and our brain goes through one last growth spurt as well to go along with all those wonderful sexual characteristics that are growing uh, during puberty. And basically what our brain starts doing is it actually starts growing a substance called myelin, which is a really wonderful fatty tissue that covers the axons of all of our neurons. What I learned about myelin is that the thicker myelin in our brain, the faster processors we are. So the faster we think. And all of this myelin is really growing a lot of times throughout our brain, but uh, it's really localized in the prefrontal cortex, which is right behind our forehead and about halfway up our skull. So that part of the brain starts its pruning process and growth process at about 11, 12 and a half. What's happening is that myelin is thickening and in order for the myelin to thicken, it needs room. And so your brain decides, well, I'm just going to prune away the cells here that I'm not using in order to make room for myelin. And so this wonderful principle, the use it or lose it principle comes into play. And it is in play all the way up until we're about 24, 25 years old with regards to our adolescent and young adult brain development. The use it or lose it principle, as you know, applies throughout the developmental lifespan. And one of the reasons why we have great games like Lumosity and things like that is because we know that if we keep our brain connected and using it, meaning that we have electrical activity and brain uh, blood flow down long strings of neurons in our brain, that those strings are going to stay connected and be a lot less likely to deteriorate with age. But that pruning process is really critical during adolescence and young adulthood. So between the ages of about 11 and 25 is where I focus a lot of my daytime attention to it. I want parents to understand that the use it or lose it principle is on their side because what the neurons uh, are, what the neurons that the kids are using are the ones that get left behind. And the ones the kids are not using are the ones that get pruned away. So what we want to see is parents who start really shifting their attention to raising their child's brain. And when I say that, what I mean is really focusing on executive functioning skills. And those are things like abstract conceptual understanding, problem solving and decision making, judgment, impulse control, emotion regulation, the ability to tolerate frustrations, and also the ability to feel and demonstrate empathy. These are all things that our prefrontal cortex does, and we grow the capacity of those skills throughout uh, adolescence and young adulthood. What I see in practice, unfortunately, a lot of times is parents who over-function for their kids. Sometimes we call them helicopter parents, right? We do too much or we solve our kids' problems for us or we rescue them from consequences. And the use it or lose it principle is really applying here. If we don't teach our kids these executive functioning skills and allow long strings of complex neurons for those skills to form, then basically what we have is not a vacuum where nothing is taking place. We actually have created long strings of neurons for dependency upon us. So we really want our kids to grow their prefrontal cortexes to their fullest Um, expression so that they, when they grow up, they can be fully self-supporting adults and take really good care of themselves. 
So what gets in the way of us developing myelin? Is there anything that um, that we do that might um, impair the development of myelin, like alcohol, use of alcohol or drugs or um, child abuse or illness? Well, it's interesting that you brought those uh, two things up in particular because as I was studying the brain and the brain development, what I found is that uh, when somebody ingests substances, what basically happens is their limbic system turns on in pleasure and the prefrontal cortex briefly shuts off because it's really uh, not needed at that time or at least that brain doesn't think it's needed. And that also happens uh, out of fear as well. When we are in fear for our lives and we're in fight or flight mode, our limbic system lights up because our brain moves all that electrical and blood flow energy into that fight or flight survival part of our brain. And then once again, our prefrontal cortex shuts off for some time. It's basically just your brain mobilizing itself to action toward uh, safety or action toward what it thinks might be good for them. Let me give you kind of an example. When we don't eat food for for about four, five, maybe six hours, we feel pretty grumpy and moody and irritable. And so basically what your limbic system is doing is it's depleting itself of dopamine and it's saying, hey, you need to go do something good for my survival. And until you do, I'm going to make you feel really uncomfortable. And then as soon as you eat, you get a 100% increase in dopamine. And so during the time that you're searching for food, your prefrontal cortex is starting to shut down a little bit. Your limbic system is turning on. All that blood flow is going toward there to try to get you to eat. And it's interesting because the same type of thing happens once you finish eating. Uh, Another good example that we all might be able to relate to is how you might feel after eating on Thanksgiving. (laughs) And so I think a lot of us overeat on Thanksgiving. And when we do, we don't really feel like doing much afterward. We don't want to do complex problem solving or decision making. We don't really want to have empathic conversations with people. We just kind of want to shut off and maybe zone out or take a nap. Well, that's really because the limbic system is lit up with lots of dopamine because of all the food you just ate. And it says, hey, you're good. You don't need that Uh, higher functioning executive part of your brain, we'll just turn that off for a little while. And so it's interesting that even pleasure or fear or um, uh, anger can do the same thing to our brain. It turns on the limbic system, shutting off the prefrontal cortex. Now that's fine and okay. It's just your body's normal feedback loops and way of taking care of itself But if you're an adolescent between the ages of 11 and 25 and you're using drugs consistently or you're in danger consistently, maybe you grow up in a a domestic abuse family or maybe you start experimenting unchecked with drugs or alcohol, when that happens, the prefrontal cortex shuts off, the limbic system lights up. But if a prefrontal cortex is shut off during adolescence and young adulthood, it's not growing We need electrical activity and blood flow to that part of the brain for it to grow. And that's actually called arrested development. You know, we've been using that term for years, but we actually have technology today that can take pictures of it, can show our children's brains that are off or impaired, and uh, we can do timeline functional MRIs of them and, and track them over time. 
And what we see is that kids who are using consistently during adolescence, they hinder that particular part of the, their brain growth. So what happens, um, can they ever catch up? Because I know one of the things that I've always um, observed in working with people that have alcohol and um, other drug abuse uh, is that once they get into early recovery, it's almost like adolescence is what they experience, you know, just the whole, the emotional part of it, the cognitive part of, of adolescence, whether they stop using it 18 or 58. Absolutely. Well, it's, it's, it's really interesting because our brain is the most neuroplastic that it's ever going to be between ages 11 and 25. What that basically means is that it can catch up really quickly if there's any type of trauma to it. And that neuroplasticity, the rate of it actually starts to fall off after the age of 25. And so basically... Uh, what, what we need to do is to either prevent or halt further abuse to the brain before the age of 25. If we can get somebody to stop under the age of 25, they have a fantastic opportunity to catch up for that arrested development to unarrest and for them to actually catch up. And a good example of this, one of my very first jobs when I became a therapist is I started working at an adolescent treatment center and we'd have kids come in from juvenile probation and, you know, they would have to stay six to nine months and, you know, they would be acting out, regressed, upset, their brains were detoxing from the substances they'd been using and you would see this very discombobulated, sometimes aggressive behavior continue for about a month or two. Well, it's time for a commercial break and we'll, we'll be right back with Dr. Collier after uh, this message. Listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandrabali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health and Wellness. Out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. 
You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, one hour at a time, and today we're talking about raising adolescent brains, the science of preventing high-risk behavior with Dr. Crystal Collier. Uh, Dr. Collier is a PhD, and she has been working with adolescents and adults suffering from mental illness, behavioral disorders, and substance abuse since 1991. Um, Crystal has been licensed by the state of Texas as a professional counselor since 1999 and a counselor supervisor since 2008. Um, Crystal is currently the Director of the Behavioral Health Institute and the Choices Prevention Program for the Council on Alcohol and Drugs in Houston, Texas. Um, her innovative comprehensive prevention program, Choices, recently was selected for the 2015 Prevention and Education Commendation from the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence. Um, Crystal, before we went to commercial, you were um, beginning to tell us about a story from one of your first uh, uh, jobs. Sure. It, it really illustrates how our brains can heal so quickly when we're adolescents. Uh, you know, that the treatment center that I worked at, kids would come in and, and they'd be very dysregulated and oppositional. And it was really interesting to watch them. You know, after about two months, two and a half months, you'd see kids kind of come out of this fog and they'd look around and they'd say, wow, you know, you come to work every day. This is a safe place. I get three meals and I'm, I go to school. People hold me accountable. They would start to feel safe and their brains would completely detox off of the drugs they'd been on. And then what you would see is they would start to regulate. They would start to calm down and uh, handle frustrations better than they used to. They would start to learn how to sit still in group and how to play nice with the other clients. And it was so neat to watch their brains unarrest. And then you'd see long strings of neuronal connections just being created for those wonderful executive functioning behaviors. What we learned how to do over the years is actually create clinic uh, clinics that focus on increasing executive functioning and also uh, teaching parents through parenting programs how to focus their parenting on those particular executive functioning skills in order not just to prevent high-risk behavior, but also so that their kids uh, are, are much more fully self-supporting uh, as adults. And so it, the neuroplasticity of adolescence is a really beautiful thing to, to watch and to utilize as a clinician. Now, unfortunately, because our adult brain is just about finished growing by the time we're 25, that means that we really, a lot of things peak at that, at that moment, our processing speed, our IQ, our psychosocial maturity, a lot of those things peak. And if people don't actually get protection or, or stay sober, if their brains are not uh, clean and clear and allowed to fully develop, they may peak in, in much lower. So they may have less psychosocial maturity, less executive functioning skills than they may have uh, possibly had. And that does affect them for the rest of their lives. Uh, you know, I, I've seen adults who really struggle with life on life's terms because they didn't really get 
full advantage of, of growing their prefrontal cortex. They were busy using drugs or alcohol or they grew up in a really scary environment growing up and, and have arrested development. You know, I was watching a film about, uh, actually, I think I was watching CNN when I was reading Dr. Jay Geed's research on adolescent brain development. This was back in like 1999 and 2000, and there were still wars going on in the Gulf. And I watched a show about uh, these kids who had uh, AK-47s, and they were they were shooting people in their in their neighborhoods. And they were just kids. They were like middle school age kids. And I thought, oh my God, if these kids grow up in a war torn country through Throughout their adolescence and young adulthood, is their prefrontal cortex off more than it is on because their limbic system is really full gear, full in the full on position because they're always in fight or flight. And then I thought, is that potentially maybe why there are a lot of countries out there who seem to just be in a perpetual war state? Our prefrontal cortex is where the idea of peace and connection to other people, that's where that takes place in our brain. And if it doesn't uh, if it's not allowed to fully develop, um, I just wonder if if people's uh, capabilities for 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 peace are diminished as well. So we definitely want to create as many programs and prevention and intervention efforts as we can for kids under the age of 25. I always tell parents, I, you know, spend your treatment dollars, spend them wisely, but spend them until they're about 25. And then after the age of 25, that's when we might want to apply kind of Al-Anon letting go techniques. But before then, we want to do everything we possibly can do as parents to raise our child's brain as to the best of the ability that we can. You know, in talking about um, people who grow up in a war zone or in, or in you know, a, a traumatic family, you wonder if those neural pathways just become so deep that um, there's, even, even in peace, you wonder how much genetically then that, get, that deeper pathway gets um, passed on to the next generation. You wonder what all this does to somebody genetically as well. It's a great point because we have this growing field of epigenetics, which basically says that we can change our behavior and rewrite our genetic code in one generation, and we can pass that new genetic code on to our offspring, but it also works in reverse. You know, if we, we have long strings of neurons for fight or flight, for protecting ourselves, then that can also be passed on from generation to generation. But it's, our brain actually needs safety and consistency in order for it to grow to its fullest potential. So when somebody has an illness, whether it's a mental illness or, you know, a, a young child has uh, diabetes or cystic fibrosis or um, any, any of the chronic illnesses of, of uh, the children sometimes get, what does that do to the development of the brain? Anything? Um, well, I tell you, that really depends upon a variety of different factors. It, one, if there is any brain damage that's caused by that uh, physical Ill, illness, that uh, might be in play. But our environment and how it's handled and if we're kept safe, consistently safe, and we're able to get uh, really good care and treatment for that, it can... Uh, it ameliorate any risk that we might have, uh, but it also can help us 
heal in a way that overcoming those risks is easier. And one of the, um, I think one of the facets of our profession that I, that's very um, under-assessed and, and talked about is fetal alcohol effects syndrome where, you know, young kids, they don't have the characteristic facial effects, but they do, if you dig deep enough into their history, you will find that they are affected by um, their, their mother's alcohol or drug use, and and are we looking at that at all with these kids? Um, Well, we definitely are, and it's really interesting because if we take a look at those parents, the parents who drank while their child was in utero or used drugs while their child was in utero, what you most likely will find is, um, is is a parent who actually started using very early on in their teens. And so uh, they expose their children to these substances. And then, of course, we have uh, neurological deficits, learning difficulties that show up thereafter. Also being parented by a, a parent who has low executive functioning skills due to their own arrested development. And so that child may not get the kind of care that they need in order to ameliorate their risk and overcome the difficulties they were born with. And that problem can continue to be repeated. One of the things I really love about working for the council on alcohol and drugs is that we offer programs for mothers who have used during utero. And those kids, once they're born, can get services for the rest of their lives to help with any of those effects. And we can also try to help get mothers off of those substances and get them supported and and start building their skills. We can start building executive functioning skills in in parents and um, as well as teenagers and young adults. That can happen so every typically, day. Typically, what kind? What, what do you do to help somebody build those skills? Well, let me give you an example of what we do in one of our classes. So we have a class here for kids who, who are in the experimentation to misuse stages. We do uh, other targeted interventions for kids who are at higher levels of abuse and dependence. But for the lower levels, we do um, very fun things. Like we, we divide our group up into two teams, and we teach them what executive functioning skills are. And then each person on the team gets a point if they exhibit an executive functioning skill. So let's just say the facilitator is talking about marijuana. If one of the kids says, uh, well, uh, you know, I understand that, that there are many different uh, levels of, of harm and addiction and, and says something like really insightful about it, then we would give them a point for really good abstract conceptual understanding. And we do it really briefly in the middle of the, uh, the lecture. And we have the kids can do it too. It doesn't have to just be us spotting it. If somebody spots it on their team, that they can say, hey, that was really good problem solving. Or, yeah, you put your cell phone down during the class. That was good impulse control. And they get a point. And then the, the whole team gets to grab a, a, a couple pieces of candy before they leave the group that day. That's just kind of one example of how we increase executive functioning skills. We always want to think, use it or lose it. How can we get these kids to use these skills? On a different night of the week, we have a group, a psychotherapy group for teenagers who have technology addiction issues and uh, social and emotional learning problems. And we do a very targeted executive functioning intervention for that group. We actually each week come in and we focus on a specific executive function. And for that week, we talk about how we have exhibited, uh, maybe let's say impulse control. The kids will talk about how they've exhibited low impulse control 
control and what are some of the ways that they could actually increase their impulse control in their lives. And then, of course, all of our counselors here are trained on identifying those when they happen in the moment because, as you know, positive reinforcement is one of the most critical tools in shaping human and animal behavior, for that matter, Uh, And so we want to make sure that we add a lot of praise for those skills, and we want to teach parents how to praise for those skills as well. You know, when I was visiting you um, in um, January, I was really impressed with your technology uh, addiction treatment group, and you said that these typically are, are young folks who don't necessarily use alcohol or drugs, it's just technology. Could you talk more about that? Sure. Well, we have addiction. kids that are born digital natives. You know, they don't know anything else except, except technology. And what we find is a lot of those kids who might be introverted or a little socially awkward or just plain shy end up uh, using their technology as, as an escape or as their only form of entertainment. And so uh, those kids, unfortunately, when we apply the use it or lose it principle, they get really, really good at their games, and their parents feel lost because they don't know what else to reward because their child won't work really hard for anything but the technology. And so, you know, that kind of a conundrum is difficult. And so we, uh, and, and, you know, most of the kids that are in that group, like us, like you said, have never tried drugs or alcohol, but they are using technology and meeting the criteria, especially the new DSM-5 criteria for addiction. You know, out of a lot of those 11 criteria that are listed there, these kids are, are meeting four or five of them. And so that would be equivalent to a, a substance use disorder moderate, but yet it's technology that's causing problems. You know, I've, I've seen cases where kids got on technology so young and put themselves in really high-risk situations sexually with predators uh, and also spent, you know, uh, way too many hours on video games uh, over the weekend and were going through detox and withdrawals on Monday morning when it was time to go back to school. Some pretty extreme cases. So we know that we have to treat the family system there and make sure that we give the kids a group where they can learn how to have more appropriate social and emotional skills, but then we also at the same time have their parents in a behavioral modification group. And I love that. And we'll be right back after this commercial. Sorry. We'll be right back. <laughs> we need to take a break. Sure. Nope. I can- listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Ayurveda and yoga are ancient sciences to achieve complete health of body, mind, and spirit. But there are many misconceptions about them. By making the science of life a way of life, managing health and preventing disease becomes second nature. 
Tune in to According to Ayurveda and Yoga with host Anne Holiday. Anne is an Ayurvedic professional and world traveler. She will show you how to apply the principles of holistic medicine to modern living. Join the conversation with her and well-known guests in the field of Ayurveda and yoga. Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods, and today we're talking about raising the adolescent brain and the science of preventing high-risk behaviors with Dr. Crystal Collier, who is a Ph.D. and the Director of the Behavioral Health Institute and the Choices Prevention Program for the Council on Alcohol and Drugs in Houston, Texas. Um, so, Dr. Collier, Crystal, what do you consider high-risk behaviors? So we focus on about 15 different high-risk behaviors in our Choices Prevention Program. You know, when we were looking at uh, uh, programs for schools, you know, we were going around and hearing that so many schools have, uh, of course, problems with substance use, but that wasn't it. And when we looked at the science of high-risk behavior, we saw that there's this culprit, you know, dopamine. When dopamine goes, uh, is spiked above our natural hedonic threshold, that's when our brain starts making changes. And we see uh, in the literature, for instance, uh, that food, highly palatable, sugar-dense, calorie-rich foods spike dopamine levels so high and are linked to addiction. Video games uh, spike dopamine levels very high, and that com- video game c- companies know this, and they actually hire teen testers to be hooked up to machines so we can see when their brains spike dopamine levels. And, and then the gaming industry adds more of those loops of behavior into the game to create really mass industrialized addiction. And so, you know, the Internet has uh, been such a, a wonderful thing for our society, but it's also exposed our kids to too many things at too early of an age. We know today that, for instance, the, the average age of first exposure to pornography is age nine. And that's primarily because kids are getting smartphones as their first phone with a- absolutely unfettered access to the Internet. So our, what we focus in on is, is alcohol use, marijuana use, tobacco use. Then we also target bullying, cyberbullying, self-injury, date rape, dating violence, sex, sex addiction, eating disordered behavior, gambling, pornography, criminal activity and violence, as well as depression, teen depression and suicide. Uh, and um, uh, those are our, our kind of 15 different uh, behaviors that we uh, focus in on throughout the year. 
So you talked about developing the frontal lobe using different um, types of skills. So what are the specific skills that you're targeting? What are you trying to get people to do? I, I mean, you mentioned the one group, but are there other things you're trying to get adolescents to do to increase their... Do they study a new language? Do they do cognitive remediation? What, what are the other things that happen? Well, when you utilize increasing executive functioning skills along with a menu of other evidence-based treatments. Of course, uh, cognitive behavioral psychology, we do a lot of motivational interviewing with teens and their family. Uh, Like I said earlier in our parent group, we teach operant behavioral principles to parents. They all get to learn about who B.F. Skinner was and how exactly to utilize the tools of operant behavioral conditioning in order to shape their children's behavior. We use a lot of mindfulness-based techniques as well in order to self-soothe as anger management techniques. We also use those for parents as well to help them understand how to handle their teenagers in a, a more kind of professional laboratory way, which is really what I want them to do. I want them to take the emotion out of parenting, which I realize is very, very difficult but when our teenagers are so emotional and they're seeking novelty in, in areas where it is really scary, one of the worst things we can do is, is parent based upon those fear reactions. We usually don't make great decisions. So we work a lot with the family system and teaching, of course, the science of high-risk behavior. We, we look at family systems, family trees, genetics, because we understand that genetics play such a big part in this and can predispose a teen to even a 40-50% increased risk of addiction as an adult. But the cool message that we know from the scientific literature is that if teenagers are able to delay drug and alcohol use till they're 21 years old, they're likely to never have a problem with it as an adult. And even better, the teenagers who delay drug and alcohol use until they're 21 who have a predisposition genetically, they are 40% less likely to have problems with addiction. So those kids may completely ameliorate their risk by... um, keeping their brains clean and sober. And, and, you know, one of the number one reasons that they do so is because their parents understand how to set really healthy limits. You know, the uh, CASA, the Center for Addiction Studies at a Columbia University, has done some fantastic research, a lot of which I'm quoting in this radio show. They've done some really great research about how to raise a drug-free kid. There's a fantastic book uh, called How to Raise a Drug-Free Kid, The Straight Dope for Parents by Joseph Califano. Uh, Our prevention program is actually highlighted in the second edition. But, you know, what his research shows is the number one reason uh, why children choose not to use, uh, even after they've experimented once or twice, is that their parents would kick their butts if they knew it. And, and so basically what that means is, is parents need to learn how to have a code of ethics and how to create consequences that are appropriate for what's going on with their kid and have the ego strength to deliver them in the moment. 
And what we find is that one of, that's one of the hardest things to do as a parent is to make your child angry, to take away the things that they love. And, and they think, oh, well, it's alcohol, drugs, high-risk behavior. It's just a stage. But we know that that is one of the biggest mistakes that parents make is that they don't give a consequence the first time. I always like to tell parents, go big, go big the first time. It's not going to hurt your child to give them a really big consequence for engaging in high-risk behavior. I mean, we know that adolescents' moral development, it takes a long time for them to start basing their decisions on what the right thing to do is. Sometimes until their late 20s, that type of moral decision-making doesn't happen. And so we know that they make decisions based upon what will or will not happen to them at home. You know, one of the things that um, certainly my kids are out of adolescence, but growing up, you know, um, parents would say, like friends of theirs, parents would say, well, I'd much rather have them drink and smoke pot here than because they're going to do it anyway. And that used to just drive me over the edge. And I'd say to my kids, you're not going. And, um, you know, and, and because I'm also an alcohol and drug abuse counselor, they they got that message from early on. But but my uh, my son always says, you know, you're such a buzzkill. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm your mother. I'm not here to entertain you. But you know, and and even now, like he still lives at home with me, and he'll say, I, I travel a lot. And I say, would you have any your friends over? He said, Are you kidding me? They won't come here and do anything. <laughs> I said, well, they're almost 30 years old. But um, he said, no, no. I said, that's okay. Um, I don't want you to leave here, you know, having drinking or under the influence. So, um, but, you know, it, it, they didn't like it. They, you know, even now they'll say, well, I don't know why we didn't get to go. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. It it's is. It's very difficult. Hormones it's... And you're saying, no, I don't think that's such a good idea. You know, well, well everybody else does it. And let me say, hats off to you, because that's excellent parenting. When, you're, when you hear your kids say, oh, you're a buzzkill, that should be music to your ears, because that hopefully lets you know you're doing the right. I always tell parents, you know, your children, when they're angry at you, when, when they say things to you like, oh, my God, I've heard this before. Why do we have to talk about it again? Please don't let that shut you off. Keep talking about it. Of course, it should be brief. We don't want to lecture them, but that really should be music to your ears as a parent. And when, when we hear kids say that in our prevention programs, like, oh, God, we're going to have another talk about drugs and alcohol, uh, that is music to my ears. That lets me know I'm doing the right thing, that they're hearing it enough. If our kids' brains look different every three months, then that means they need to hear this message consistently at least every three months. And so, uh, but teaching parents how to handle that, uh, you know, giving parents the ego strength and support and backing them up. Because, I mean, I tell you, when our teenagers are functioning with uh, only 50% of their frontal lobe, because that's all that's grown and developed thus far, they can really say things and do things that are really mean and that really hit us, uh, you know, in, 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 in tough places. And we may give in even though we know we shouldn't. So my hat's off to you, Mary. That's an excellent parenting. Well, thank you. I thank you. You know, I think the other thing that, that was really hard, um, even as an addiction professional, up until maybe the last 10 years, everybody always talked about peer pressure, peer pressure, peer pressure. And if you were going to really do prevention, 
for kids. It was all about peer pressure. But the reality of it is it's all about the parents and the parents. Um, what they do has much more influence than peers, but that doesn't get out. That message isn't gotten out. Mm-hmm. Why is that, do you think? I, I Gosh, I don't, I'm not quite sure. I think that, you know, I think a lot of parents don't really want this information until something happens, until they're in a crisis, which is unfortunate because, you know, research has been, has demonstrated that when we start doing prevention in elementary school, that we see a huge difference in adult behavior when, it's, when they hear the consistent message throughout elementary, middle, and high school. But like I said, it's, you know, prevention is not something that people really think about or want to spend money about unless something's going on, unless there's a crisis, unless something's happening. I, I, wish, we could, uh, I, I wish we could start training parents about how to do these things, you know, uh, prenatally. <laughs> Uh, but, you know, a lot of our kids grow up just fine and, and have engaged in some experimentation here or there. A lot of us have, too. You know, we don't think about that percentage of kids who's going to have problems, uh, and it's, especially if we turned out okay. Yeah, I see that a lot. I've got a lot of parents in my programs who have more than one kid. They went through their own stages but turned out okay. Uh, and most of their kids are turning out okay, even though they are bumps in the road, but then they've got one child who is a very impulsive or sensation seeker. After this commercial, we'll talk more about those kids um, in just a minute. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Good childhood mental health is critically important. Early patterns of emotions and thinking shape children's behavior from preschool into the teen years and beyond. But understanding young kids can be a challenge. Tune in to Child Psych Central. Discover the kid brain with Dr. Beth Onafrak. Each week, we will reveal how brain function and child development drive young children's daily behavior. Listen every Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. It's one of the best things that you can do as a parent. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time.
Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Dr. Crystal Collier, who is a Ph.D. and the director of the Behavioral Health Institute and Choices Prevention Program for the Council on Alcohol and Drugs in Houston, Texas. Um, Their innovative comprehensive prevention program, Choices, recently was selected for the 2015 Prevention and Education Accommodation from the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Abuse. And um, I want to make sure in our last segment people know how to contact you and know a little bit more about who do you treat at the Council on Alcohol and Drugs in Houston. Is it just for adolescents or is it for adults? Oh, no. We actually have a comprehensive menu of services for um, anywhere from women who are exposed uh, prenatally, their children are exposed. We have children's program. We actually have the Betty Ford children's program here at the council that we do kids camp. We have, of course, our adolescent program, and uh, we also have a lot of outreach into the schools. And then we have a comprehensive menu of of adult services, adult residential and uh, outpatient treatment programming here as well as in Austin uh, at uh, Austin Recovery. And so... uh, you can people can contact me by calling my direct line, which is two eight one two hundred nine two six two, or they could also contact me via email, which is uh, ccollier at council dash houston dot org. ccollier at council dash houston dot org. Thank you. So um, when we were. On commercial, you and I were talking about some of the warning signs for parents to look for for kids who are at high risk of um, of substance abuse or acting out behavior or or um, just kind of being in trouble. Uh, can you share those with the whole audience? Oh, sure. There's a fantastic study that's being conducted in Europe, and, and, and we're seeing some of the same um, outcomes published here in the United States. Uh, the study in Europe is called the Imogen Study, and there, you know, now we get to collect not just uh, information about someone's history and do surveys with them, but we can also look at their physiology and collect uh, physical data, brain scans and images, and we really can take a look comprehensively at someone and study them long longitudinally. And some great information is coming out of this. What we're finding out is that, of course, when we have a genetic history of it, we might be at 40 to 50% increased risk. Parents need to know that and need to be aware of that, especially parents of adopted kids who may not have that information. If they don't have that information, they can look for some other signs. Some of the early warning signs are kids who already are very impulsive. High degrees of impulsivity have been linked to engaging in high-risk behavior earlier in life, and early life high-risk behavior is linked to later uh, adult addictive processes. So impulsivity is a big one to watch out for. Another one is sensation-seeking. You know, we have kids out there who uh, they wanted to seek novelty and individuate at appropriate times in their development, and that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about extreme sensation seeking. These are kids who immediately get interested in all kinds of things, including high-risk behavior. They're constantly seeking out sensations. They don't like being bored. It's a really uncomfortable state of being for them. 
those kids have a much higher risk of engaging and becoming addicted to, to a lot of different high-risk behaviors. And then um, the kids who have uh, high degrees of hopelessness, which we see in kids who have a lot of depression, Kids like this might be might come from family systems where there are some big problems. So we want to make sure that if we see depression and hopelessness in our kids, that we get them connected to counseling, to services as soon as we can, and do some family intervention as well. And then the fourth one, which is really kind of interesting, is anxiety sensitivity. What we find is that Kids who have anxiety sensitivity, it actually predicts no use of substances. You know, these are our kind of practical kids who they're kind of worried and scared about everything. And they, you know, they say no to drugs and, and they'll never do that. And usually those kids don't. You know, about, about 87% of our high school populations experiment with drugs or alcohol, but that leaves 13% who never do. Those are usually more of the high, highly sensitive, anxious kids. But it's interesting because even though that predicts non-use, when those children do engage in substance use, it actually reverses the prediction. Now they're much more uh, likely to engage and become addicted to high-risk behaviors once they engage in the activity. Because kids like that learn that drugs of abuse, especially depressants or things like marijuana that calm the nervous system down, they realize that those are actually uh, good treatments for their anxiety. And so we really want to make sure that if we see anxiety sensitivity young, that we start teaching uh, skills for self-soothing relaxing. Meditation classes are really good for those kids. We want long strings of neurons for sustaining attention, filtering out distractions, and contemplative skills. Um, it's, it's just, um, it's very helpful to know that there are things that we can do to reverse some of these um, high impulsive behaviors that, that kids have and to know that that physiologically there's something going on here that we can intervene with. And I'm just wondering, how do parents react to all this? Um, do, they, do they get hopeful? Do they jump in and learn these new skills? They do. You know, the parenting class that I do on Wednesday night where I teach people behavior modification, I just ask parents to commit to that for a month. Now, their kids might be in treatment with us for six months or longer, but sometimes, you know, the parents just need some skills. They need to understand how do I apply these, and when my child has extinction bursts or angry outbursts, how do I handle those? What's the appropriate language? So we teach them fun things like duct tape therapy and, <laughs> and how to do the 90-10 rule. Sure. Duct what tape therapy is really therapy. simple. Imagine yourself putting a big piece of duct tape on your mouth, and that's basically what it is. A lot of times our kids just need to hear themselves talk. We don't need to get into a power struggle or answer back. The, the more we do that sometimes is the worst because then they can pull us into a really horrible power struggle when really all they need is for us to validate their feeling. Even though we disagree with the behavior, we can validate their feeling and reflect back to them what they've just said which actually confronts them directly with their irrational thinking. It's when we start to argue against their irrational thinking that we actually have lost as parents. <laughs> it's <always> so true. <laughs> 
This has been a delightful hour, Crystal. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us, and it was a great show. Um, you're a pro at this. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Mary. I appreciate it. Okay. Have a great week, everybody. And if you want any information on an adolescent brain, uh, Dr. Collier is the person you want to talk to. Have a great week. We appreciate you joining us today for one hour at a time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.